0: Hello and welcome to this podcast from Conway Hall, London, where ethics matter. To find out more about our programme of talks and concerts, visit conwayhall.org.uk or find us on social media. In this online talk, Professor of Media Studies and former video game developer Shira Chess argues that feminism needs video games as much as video games need feminism.
1: I was invited here today because I wrote a book which came out earlier this year. Uh, The book that I wrote, this book, Play Like a Feminist, was meant as a provocation. And I wrote it in 2018 and 2019 in response to the impending feelings of doom that I had when I thought about the world around me. And as it happens, the world is still pretty messy in 2020, I don't pretend that my book has an answer to all of the things, but I've come here today to ask you to think a little bit less about Impending Doom and a little bit more about play. It's a book about why we need to think differently about video games, but it isn't just about video games. And it's a book proposing that play should be a core issue of equality and of feminism. My goal was, and still is, that I wanted to write something positive that gave a sense of hope both to me and to others. Um sorry uh, there uh, because as Roxane Gay says, let us try to become the feminist we would like to see moving through the world. And that's what this project was to me. The idea was that feminine the feminism that I wanted to see, the one that I wanted to try and use to affect change was one that fully embraced play in many aspects, through rethinking the value of leisure, to getting more people playing video games, to changing how we approach activism and protest. I'm not here to tell you that if you play video games you will miraculously fix everything around us, that would be absurd, but I'm here to say that by thinking about the importance of games, and of leisure equality, we can take a small step towards improving our own lives and the lives of those around us. At the same time, we can help to improve an industry that has been long stuck in a space between innovation and stagnation, ping-ponging between the two at regular intervals. And to that end, I use the phrase play like a feminist throughout my book as a call to action, and here's what I mean by it. I see playing like a feminist as a disruptive and inclusive practice. We play like a feminist both to improve lives and think about protest differently. We play like a feminist when we retool the pleasures of play, creating powerful opportunities for players to experiment with identity and agency. We play like a feminist when we apply intersectional approaches to leisure disparities and help find playful opportunities for others. We play like a feminist when our play isn't just about white, male, cisgender, young, straight, able, dexterous players. It is about play that aligns itself with a larger cause of leisurely freedom. And we play like a feminist when we transform video game culture, forging a space within it for new kinds of games and gamers. And so we play like a feminist when we weave all of these measures together to engage in radical play. And just to clarify, when I wrote my book, I was speaking to you. Yes, you in the back or whatever qualifies as the back of Zoom. Um, You who don't think of yourself as a gamer. Hey, you who plays Best Fiends and words with friends on your phone. I'm talking to you because the video game industry is a hot mess. And I'm talking to you because even though you don't think that you have any say, you get to be part of this conversation about what games get to look like and how they can be important you get to be part of the community figuring out the content of this mass media. In my book, I argue that if we play more, think better about play and strategize play into our everyday lives, in part through video games, we can be better feminists, better allies, and at the same time, make better games. And to that end, my talk today is going to break down two major ideas. First, why feminists need video games and second, why video games need feminisms. So, let's start with the first premise um, and that I want to convince you of today, that feminists need video games. Now, it's not my goal here today to spend a whole lot of time convincing you of the import of feminism. There are a lot of people that probably could do that more effectively than I can. And I'm, not, I'm going to assume that if you came here to this talk, you're at least marginally on board with the notion of why feminism is important. But just in case there's any ambiguity, let me say that the definition of feminism that I embrace in my work is from Bell Hooks, who wrote that feminism, quote, is a movement to end sexism, sexist exploitation, and oppression. Feminism is not a movement about excluding men, but about equality for all. Feminism is not only for white folks, and it's not only for middle class people, and it is not only for cisgendered people. Okay. So Now that we've gotten that settled, let's talk about why feminists need video games. To do this, I need to backtrack a little bit and give you some context. My context starts with another book that I wrote, Um, this one published in 2017 called Ready Player 2. Ready Player 2 was a more traditionally academic book and in it I studied specifically how video games are designed for and marketed to an idealized feminine audience. In the book I talk about A lot of games that not a ton of other people talk about, games like Kim Kardashian Hollywood and Diner Dash and an endless number of match three games and bubble shooters. So Ready Player Two was meant as a response to game culture and to some extent game academics who often narrowly focus on what are referred to as hardcore and triple A games in the industry and in deference to a masculine geek culture. To that end, I titled Ready Player Two with an acknowledgement of the popular dystopian novel, Ready Player One. And many of you probably have read the book or seen the film, but for those of you that haven't, Ready Player One takes place in a dystopian future where its inhabitants seek solace in an imaginary game world, one that is based on its creators' fetishizations of 1980s popular culture. And like, well, like any Gen Xer, I'm all about fetishizing 1980s popular culture, When I read the book, something sat wrong with me. Because through its constant references to movies like Real Genius and Revenge of the Nerds and glorification of 1980s geek figures such as Steve Wozniak, the book makes it very clear who its vision of player one is, a white heterosexual cisgendered man. Rhetorically, The book seems to be arguing that this is the image that Player One is based on. He's an industry construction that all games seem to center themselves around. And through all of this, Ready Player One reifies something else already accepted in popular culture. It creates a specific path of who a gamer is, what a gamer gets to look like, and what that gamer gets to play. So to shorthand it, we've been led to believe that a typical gamer looks like this... Not like this. And this, by the way, was I think Wired Magazine 2006, the cover um, Martha Stewart was making a wee cake. Um, And that good games, productive games, games that benefit the industry and the overstated vision of the gamer should look like this, not like this. But that is not the reality. Games and gamers look like a lot of different things. And in fact, roughly half of all gamers identify as female. This is a complicated number, I should add, because based on survey, it's based on surveys that place the numbers anywhere from 46% to 52%, depending on what counts as a gamer and who counts as a woman. The video game industry is also so male dominated, 22% comprised of women, but also that statistic is complicated because it is a bit dated because of the other aforementioned issues. And also because it includes people in non-design jobs like human resources. Because of all of these things, the fact that roughly half of all players identify as female is not the perception of what a gaming public looks like. So in reality, it doesn't matter who actually plays video games, the perception is all that matters. And in turn, about half of all game players don't count. They don't get to decide what games are important. They don't get a voice in the future of the industry. And this particularly applies to those who don't play console-based video games of a specific We've been, We have a long, robust history of video games being made for a specific, specialized audience. And those moments when the industry does seek out more diverse audiences, it does so in really distilled, nuanced ways. So was it always like this? The simple answer is not really. Um, Early video games were relatively gender neutral and were meant as entertainment for all, although we can see hints of gender bias pretty early on. Because of a variety of socio-industrial factors, however, that began to shift by the mid 1980s. In her book, Coin Operated Americans, rebooting boyhood at the video game arcade, Carly Kosarik explores the roots of how and when video games became a gendered practice. And to this point, the industry really began to lean in and specifically market games to men and boys by the mid-1980s and became a mainstay of boy culture by the mid-1990s. So basically, video games were not always constructed for gendered audiences, but once they became so, it was hard to push back against the notion that video games were meant for an audience of men and boys, a good old boys playground, so to speak. There were, of course, outlier moments, but... Um, like the 1990s when Barbie fashion designer became briefly a hit, but Barbie fashion designer qualified more as software than as a game. It was a way to make clothing for Barbie dolls. Um, Before that, somewhat infamously, in the 1980s, there was apparently a proposal for the Nintendo knitting machine, pictured here, now you're knitting with power, that never actually ended up being, getting made. It was a peripheral that never was quite made, but it was proposed or it was never uh, marketed mainstream, I should say. Um, It it was um, specifically made um, with an intended audience of getting girls to play with the Nintendo entertainment system. Of course, a lot of girls did play with the NES and other game game systems before that, but they were largely an invisible audience that was rarely considered a primary market. By the late 1990s and early 2000s, there began to be a mild shift and more attempts to get girls in the game, so to speak. Research started to illustrate that girls with an interest in video games were more likely to enter STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math careers several studies and initiatives began to suggest how game design might be an easy fix to this problem. So my image here is from Purple Moon Games, a popular series um, from the late 1990s that led many of these efforts. Brenda Laurel, um, the uh, CEO, led many of the efforts for this. So after a time, several researchers, myself included then, became interested in women in games, studying some of the barriers to entry in getting women to play more video games and why we should even care. And suddenly, more video games did start to be designed for and marketed to women players. Specifically, in the early 2000s, an increasing number of what are commonly referred to as casual games, and I'll break down that term in a moment, started to be designed deliberately for women audiences. Casual games are generally considered games that are cheap or free, can be played for longer or shorter amounts of time, and are easy to learn. Their general accessibility meant that they became the entry point for a deluge of new players during that time period, and many of them women, playing hidden object games and time management games on lower-powered computers. Casual games commonly sit in a point of opposition to what were often referred to as hardcore games, games that are played on consoles or higher-powered computers for longer periods of time and require both higher gaming skill sets and more money. And while the terms hardcore casual are easily critiquable, they also create a baseline for the transition that occurred during that time period. They created a pecking order of big games versus little games, games that matter versus games that matter less. As video game technologies continue to advance with the release of the Nintendo DS Lite and Wii, um, as well as the uh, popularity of smartphones, video games became became a more robust medium meant to appeal to broader audiences. So to remind of the statistic I cited earlier, about half of all people who play video games identify as female. But other surveys show that while 49% of adults play video games, only 10% of them consider themselves gamers. This idea of the gamer really clarifies the disconnect between hardcore and casual and the percentage of the market that the hardcore games really fully serve. While casual games have risen in popularity, they have also been made fun of by the larger gaming public. The boundaries of hardcore versus casual is a litmus test determining who does and does not belong in the video game industry, creating a false politics of who is entitled to play and who is entitled to have an opinion about what matters in that industry. In 2014, we saw the rise of Gamergate as an official moment when masculine game players felt galvanized enough to argue that video game culture belonged to them. Those who were part of Gamergate in turn, harassed women players and industry professionals with violent hate speech, often threatening them both online and offline. And so here's an example of a filthy casuals meme meant to suggest that casual games are ruining the video game industry and specifically targeting women and girl players. So that was the context in which I wrote Ready Player Two. I wrote a book specifically to highlight video games that were designed for other audiences, non-mainstream audiences. I wrote a book about the filthy casuals, so to speak, about the games that are laughed at by hardcore audiences. I wrote a book about the video games that are often overlooked but that fund large portions of the industry. I wrote about games that people are often sheepish when they admit that they play. And then, following the publication of Ready Player Two in 2017, I experienced something unexpected. I was increasingly approached by women from a variety of backgrounds who confided in me their experiences with video games. These moments were distinct from previous points in my life when strangers and friends, women in particular, spoke to me about my research. In the past, I was told things like, oh, I would never play video games. I don't have time for play. Or, you study video games? They're so violent. And over the last few years, I noticed an abrupt shift. Instead, those same kinds of people approached me about their love for or interest in video games. And the things that people said to me in those moments varied, but the most notable were from friends and family members who came back to me after playing a game that I recommended saying things like, I never knew that games like that existed. I never knew that games like that existed. This comment was often said in reference to artful or literary games such as Monument Valley or Gorogoa, two games that had similarly affected me with their sublime beauty. It began to occur to me that many audiences and women audiences in particular had no idea what video games had become or were capable of being. And the way I began to see it was like this. There are two kinds of people out there, people who love video games and people who don't know which video games they love yet. And I I know that this is perhaps overly simplistic. I'm aware that there are people who don't like any iteration of game, digital or analog. Um, But in my experience, most people can find a kind of video game that is satisfying in a way that fills some intense desire for leisure in a way that makes their lives better. But the problem has always been one of information. News outlets, when they talk about video games, talk about negative connotations and salacious stories. We hear about violence and obsessions and addictions and other unsavory things. We rarely hear about the good, the things that video games bring us. We rarely hear about the artful and literary games, which affects public perception of what games are and what they can be. And this to me was a feminist concern. This became deeply important to me as a feminist issue, how to get more feminists playing video games. Because feminism needs play. Feminisms don't play. Feminisms work, and then they work more. And feminist work is occupied with human rights in homes and in offices, with bodies, with technology, with health, and with politics. The feminisms of the past have all been inextricably entangled with these matters of gravity and importance. As such, there has been no playtime in feminism. And Why should there be? Why should a series of serious social movements have time to concern themselves with the importance of play or playful activism? But it's time for a playful and play-filled feminism. A playful feminism, as I envision it, is a space to advocate for an equality of leisure. Now, video games are part of that, but also part of a broader trajectory of the complex relationship between women and leisure. And by leisure, I'm referring to free unstructured, non-obligatory time meant to decrease stress and improve lives. And research in leisure studies since the 1980s has demonstrated that there is a gap in leisure quality. This area of research has demonstrated that women specifically have long had a complicated relationship with leisure. To this end, women often describe their leisure in terms of its productivity. Sociologist, Rosemary Dean writes that women's leisure is typically leisure that is cheaper, free, can be done in short snippets of time and made to fill all available time. Oddly, or not so oddly fitting in with the previous definition that I gave for casual games. And so we see examples of this all the time. Leisure gets marketed in really gendered ways with often productive forms of leisure marketed to feminine audiences and more free form kinds of leisure marketed to masculine audiences. So back to the original conceit of the section, why do feminists need video games? We need them for two reasons. The first is that, simply put, video games create an opportunity to enact leisure equality. It is a space that has been largely dominated by masculinity until this point, and it is a space where femininity gets largely ignored, harassed, or mocked. A renewed focus on video games creates a new set of opportunities for thinking about leisure equality. The second major reason that we need more feminists playing video games is that playing more video games can help us to strategize better. Here, I'm arguing that playing more video games can make us better feminists. Play is an act of resistance, not just about resisting a lack of leisure equality, but using strategies and tactics built into play. In our political fights, we need to learn to game things out better. We need to glitch out vulnerabilities. We need to mod the game, make a new game, tease out the problems and find ways to play differently. And no one knows better how to glitch out a game than a gamer. By training more feminists to be gamers, we are essentially training them to more effectively think about systems of oppression and structures that can be beaten. So what do I mean when I say play is resistance? It can mean a lot of different things. We can talk about how we can use play to disrupt the status quo through things like alternate reality games or live action role-playing games. When we play video games, we're embarking on an act of resistance to rethink our situational realities and force us to reconsider the world around us in new terms. These new ways of looking aren't always activist, but they are always a kind of resistance. And to that end, I'm going to break down three different ways that we can use play to rethink feminisms through agency, through empathy, and through community. Cumulatively, these categories can demonstrate the feminist potential of video games. And I'll go through each and then give you a few examples. So let's start with agency. Agency is a term used by activists and scholars to articulate the process of taking action, specifically for speaking against systems of power. After all, having a will to act and call out power is the essence of how we can redefine the status quo of hegemonic power structures. As it happens, agency is also a term that we think about a lot in video game design. Agency in a video game is our will to act to become part of a game system while also pushing against it. Without player agency, without that will to act, the player will always lose the game. In the real world, we need to think about our agency to affect change, and thinking about games can help us get there. Because video games are agentic training machines. When we play a game, we are exerting our agency in an unequal system, pushing our power to its limits. Playing games teaches us how to find that agency, and I would argue, exerting agency in a game world can help to teach us how to exert more agency in the real world. The first example that I want to give of the agentic potential of games is from the game series, Life is Strange. In Life is Strange, the player controls the life of Max Caulfield, a young woman in high school, dealing with a series of both personal and supernatural crises. Towards the latter, the player is given the power to replay moments of Max's life. At points, when choices are given to the player, the player may choose to revisit a moment and replay making new and presumably better life choices. But of course, the reason why Life is Strange is successful as a coming age story is not because it's a flatly told narrative, but because it's a game. It provides a space where the audience is not passive, but playing an important role in the retelling of the story. The rewind button not only forces the player to think about reflection, but also gives the player an active opportunity to act and to reflect. It fosters player agency. My second example is from one of my all-time favorite mobile games, Monument Valley. Monument Valley is a puzzle game where the player travels through Escher-esque castles, trying to position and reposition pathways to move forward. The game is light on story, but the art and puzzles are breathtaking. The thing that I like about Monument Valley as a feminist game is not the fact that the protagonist is a princess, although she is. The thing that I like that is that all of the game's agency is about perspectival shifts. As you make choices and movements in the game, as you choose to act, you are constantly in a position where you are forcing yourself to rethink the perspective of the game world. To that point, a path may look flat and impassable, and it might be for some time, but by using your agency to experiment with the space, the player might discover new ways of looking at that path, new dimensions to a problem and new perspectives to what might have previously looked like limitations. Monument Valley is remarkable because when you play it for a few hours, the habits from the game leak into everyday life. I find that when I play the perspectival shifts tend transfer into my habits and remind me to look at things differently, to find solutions through difficult problems video games are agentic training machines because they teach us skills in a safe space, remind us of our will to act, and then give us purpose to reflect on those actions afterwards. Additionally, video games are unique for their affective potential. The emotional affect and ability to create bridges of empathy is one of the things that video games really do uniquely well compared to other media. A video game is a kind of text, and like any text, it has the narrative possibilities to affect, alienate, or subsume its audience into a story. The emotional potential of video games can provide a resonating kind of depth that is capable of enrapturing audiences just as or even more powerfully than any other medium. Researcher Aubrey Annable refers to video games as affective systems and writes that a game is, quote, an interface for grasping contemporary structures of feeling. The screens we interlock with make us feel things, and those things can bring us a new node for understanding identity and increasing empathy. As we play things, we feel things, become things, and rethink things, and there's nothing more feminist than this. Playing more games helps us create an empathy bond with characters outside of ourselves. In the game Oxen Free, for example, the player takes on the role of Alex, a teenager whose brother died before the story has started. The game begins with her and her friends interacting on a deserted and haunted island alongside her new stepbrother, Jonas. The game's story is an interactive narrative to an extent. The primary acts and plot points of the story remain the same, but the distinctions in how the player experiences the story all relate to affect. If the player is mean to Jonas or her, friend or her friends um, or ignores them entirely, the game results in different outcomes than if they are kind. This results in different endings and outcomes for herself, her friends, and the ghosts that haunt them. The finales, all of them, relate back to the empathy that we have towards Alex and the empathy that Alex has towards others. While the story itself is supernatural, the experiences that we have while playing through it are all quite relatable and realistic. The game forces us to think about the inner worlds of others and finding ways to evade encroaching supernatural forces while doing so. Ritual of the Moon, designed by artist Kara Stone is a 28 day long narrative of a witch abandoned on a moon, on the moon, um, working through her feelings and choices as a meteor rapidly plummets towards the earth. You play for about five minutes a day, reflecting on the predicament of the main character. Our daily ritual with checking in with the witch and making choices about the future of earth connects us to our feelings of isolation and forgiveness. It also gives us an opportunity for mindfulness and meditation baked into our digital practices. Opportunities to consider our empathetic practices can function as an act of resistance. We can use empathy to look beyond our own experiences and try to find new ways to be more inclusive in our everyday worlds. And finally, I wanted to mention how play engenders community. We are at an odd moment here in 2020. The world is, in a word, weird. Many of us are isolated and feel the despair of that isolation. We need to feel the camaraderie of other humans. We need more opportunities for community building in a time and a place that meeting in person to work together and conspire together to resist together has become difficult. Video games can provide another vehicle for us to build community virtually. Additionally, the act of playing a game together creates a set of common rules and boundaries that are alternate from real life. The most obvious example is this is the hot game of the moment Among Us. Among Us, if you haven't heard about it recently, is a social deduction game where players group together and decide who among them is the traitor. Among Us was initially released in 2018, but it didn't become a hit until COVID times because now is the moment that we need more games that give us a sense of community and help us to play together from a distance. Games can create specific instances and opportunities where we can galvanize, coordinate and resist together. So circling back to the question that I asked at the beginning of this talk, why do feminists need video games? We need to play more games because by playing games, by getting more people to play, by thinking about structural systems, gaming them out, finding vulnerabilities, and then finding playful ways to combat those vulnerabilities, that's how we win. That's how we make the world better. I might argue that some of the reasons why movements like Gamergate were so successful at their campaigns is that they were movements made up of game players who knew how to work exploits of a system. At the same time, we can use the agentic and empathy building mechanisms already inherent in video games to allow us to see things differently, to understand the world from other perspectives and to gain agency to think about how to make structural change. So I began the presentation by asserting what to me seems like an obvious point, that video games need to matter to feminists. However, I'm also here to argue the reverse point. Uh, feminisms need to matter more to video games, both the industry at large and those individuals that are beholden to that industry. Now, this might seem counterintuitive. To some extent, video game the video game industry has been at odds with feminism in a variety of ways for some time, um, whether that's in critique of the absurdly proportioned Lara Croft or in response to the toxicity promoted within Gamergate. Yet, to think of feminism and video games as at odds with one another is wrong headed. Earlier in this talk, I spoke about Player One, this idea that the video game industry designs this sense of an idealized player. I also unpacked how that player is typically depicted masculine, white, heterosexual, cisgendered, enabled. This image of Player One as the core market has served a Portion of the video game industry marginally well. It has resulted in innovation in one specific big bucket sector, hardcore AAA games. Innovation tends to serve this sector over and over again, making graphics better and processor speed faster with the same kinds of games. But the focus of appealing to that singular market also limits innovation of the industry. Video games as a format and medium are in need of a creative platform expanding metaphysical explosion. There are ruts and assumptions that have for so long ruled how things are done. By appealing to a singular audience or a few core audiences, we are missing opportunities for innovation, creativity and dramatic overhauls of how we think about games and play. An example of this is the central premise of Christopher A. Paul's toxic meritocracy of video games, why gaming culture is the worst. Paul's argument is that the philosophy of meritocracy is the dominating premise of most video games and consequently a damaging force in video game culture. Chris Paul links these trends, suggesting that the one hinges on the other. So then the question becomes, if we rethink some of the underlying philosophies of video games, if we invite in new ideological premises that are meant to destabilize and disrupt, what might video games look like? To my mind, they can only look better. Video game audiences have already begun to diversify. In recent years, it has been ironically, the occurrences surrounding Gamergate that has made the presence of feminist gamers more obvious. Gamergate has galvanized many of the disenfranchised voices that have been engaging in game culture, both quietly and not so quietly, for decades now. But even more importantly, an increasing number of feminists are also en route to becoming gamers. The medium of video games is still quite young, and the market is still figuring itself out. While it might have previously been acceptable to appeal solely to niche masculine markets. This is no longer going to remain a viable business plan. As the market continues to grow up, diversity is a glorious inevitability and one that the industry should wholeheartedly embrace. But there is more at play in why feminism should matter to video games than simply expanding the market. Thinking about feminism can make video games better. We've already seen hints of this change. Well, not all women are feminists and not all feminists are women, the shifting demographics of the video game industry illustrates that new technologies, new audiences, and new ways of thinking about what a video game can be have only helped to push the medium. Earlier in this talk, I referenced statistics that only 22% of the industry identified as female. But what's remarkable about this number is the dramatic speed that got it In 2009, the video game industry was composed of only 11% women, and that number doubled to 22% by 2014. In that time, we have seen an explosion of new kinds of games and gaming. Some of this, of course, is due to rapid technological developments. Yet, technology can only revolutionize so much. And I would argue that the truly innovative and artful video games that we have seen in the past decade are due to the slow but steady, diversification of who is making video games. Video games need feminism just as much as feminism needs video games. So what happens if we imagine audiences differently? What happens if we pull in new audiences who are still figuring out what they might like to play and how they might want to play it? What happens if rather than assuming that video games are just for your high school brother or your middle-aged dad, We start assuming that games are for your grandmother or for working moms or for genderqueer teens. What happens if we stop deciding the specific identity of who gets to play all together and make more games for more people? All of a sudden we serve two purposes, innovating content and structure of what we are making and also encouraging leisure equality. And at the same time, we are, as I already noted, providing new tools for thinking about resistance. The history of the video uh, video games and the video game industry is overwhelmed with stories that reinforce patriarchal culture and at the same time create opportunities to push back against that very culture. It is impossible to look at the cultural history of gaming and not assume that gaming narratives wouldn't be overwhelmed with the same masculinity that has guided the industrial economy of the medium for decades. Yet in the introduction to their volume, Feminism in Play, Kishana Gray, Gerald Voorhees, and Emma Boston write that quote, games provide both training grounds for the consumption of narratives and stereotypes and opportunities to become instruments of hegemony. In other words, video games have a history that tends towards patriarchal undercurrents, but has overwhelmingly potential, overwhelming potential in its format to revise, rethink, and reprogram the medium. And we can see this potential in the themes and games that I shouted out to earlier. Games are gigantic training machines that build empathy and create community. If we see feminism as an issue of equality, the relationship between feminism and video games become so simpatico that it is difficult to understand why the two haven't been more inextricably entangled since they were first innovated. The games that I already mentioned earlier are games with feminist potential. And there are many others that are out there gaining notoriety. So Gone Home, A Night in the Woods, Never Alone, Florence, What Remains of Edith Finch, just as a few examples. These are games that push our understanding of what digital play can look like. And so feminism has already innovated video games. We just need to find ways to pull in more folks and let them experience the amazing potential of the medium. As I said earlier, there are two types of people in the world people who love video games and people don't know who, who know which video games they love yet. I don't know which one you are but I'm here to tell you to figure it out and work it out from there. If you're in the second category, start with research. And because research can be overwhelming, I might recommend checking out my website, playlikeafeminist.com, where I have tips and ideas for getting started on that adventure. And if you're in the first category, find other people in your lives and figure out how to get them playing more. In short, I'm here right now to tell you all that you need to play more. If you're someone who likes video games, find new games to challenge yourself. If if you are game curious, find recommendations. If you previously thought you didn't want to play games, consider the possibility that you just haven't found the right ones yet. And if you are someone who is already a heavy gamer, go find people in your lives who aren't getting enough leisure or play and help them to play more. Become a play evangelist. Get everyone you know, your parents, your kids, your co-workers, your friends, your allies to play more games because it will make us better humans and better feminists. And if more of us play more games, we will make games
0: better. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Conway Hall is a registered charity and as such, we are reliant on donations now more than ever. You can learn more about our origins and history, join our mailing list Make a donation or even become a member of the Ethical Society by visiting conwayhall.org.uk forward slash donation. And if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to like and subscribe.